All right, that's good. Have a seat. <laughs> Didn't mean to cut you off, but we got to get out of here by noon. Are you there? First Samuel 24. We should have a slide for that page number. Reagan, can you bring that up, please? First slide. There it is, 205. If you've got a house Bible at the door, that's where we're going to be today. Uh, and we'll go from there. Are you there? Thank you. The one person. Um, let's get right into it. Much to do. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, Saul is the current king of Israel. He's the first king of Israel. He was told, so he's been told by his men, David, this is the David who killed the giant, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David. You can pick up from that that Saul is desperate. We need 3,000 men to find this person. To set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. So the fact that Saul has been told, quote-unquote, where David's whereabouts are, it tips off the reader, that's you and me, the listener to the story, it tips us off that this is not the first time that David has been on the run. I mean, a few chapters earlier, David's on the run again and again and again. And so here we have, once again, Saul being told, we know where David is. And so Saul launches this all-out search for David. Now, he's been told that David is in this area called En Gedi. I have some pictures for you, the first slide. The En Gedi sits on the west coast of the Dead Sea. And this picture was taken in the time of David, so <laughs> um, it's not really. But you have the Dead Sea in the distance and, of course, uh, the En Gedi here. Next slide. <laughs> there were pictures of people in the springs, but I like the one with the goat, all right? Because he's looking right at us, isn't he? Is anybody a goat fan? That's kind of a cute... Is that a goat? Okay, no. My wife says no. What is that? It's not a goat? <laughs> we'll talk later. All right. Well, I like this one because he's cute. Probably mangle you, but he's cute. Uh, the En Gedi was an oasis in the desert. So... If you're going to run as a fugitive, this is a good place. There's water, there's food, there's places to sleep. Next slide. These little holes, they're bigger than they look. These holes that are in the side of the En Gedi, the mountains. This is also the same place they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, deep in these caves. These are really mangers. That's what a manger is. It's a place where a shepherd would go and sleep at night. So it puts new meaning to where Jesus may have been born. But we have these caves where shepherds would corral their sheep and they would sleep in these places. And so David is said to be in this area known as the En Gedi, and it's beautiful. Look what the writer of the Song of Songs says. Next slide, it says, My lover is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of the En Gedi. Now that will get you the date right there, all right? So if you're looking for a good line, that's a good one. Um, this is where David is hiding. This is where David has run to, and it says that it's David and his men. Now, earlier in David's life, as he's running, he runs into 400 men who were running from the authorities. They're in debt. They owe money. They're on the run. They're fugitives. And it says that David is sort of among them, and he becomes their leader. So it's this Robin Hood sort of lost boys uh, 
situation where David has become like the de facto leader of 400 fugitives. So when you see the phrase David and his men, this is what we're talking about, criminals. The number grows to 600 by our story today. So it's David and this small army of people, and they're all hiding out in these caves. Now the backstory to why David is on the run is pretty simple. David was living in a nation during a time in a nation where the current king, Saul, was uh, running out of uh, mental strength. He was mentally exhausted. And as an influencer and a leader, the scriptures say that he was inept. He had become unfit for the gig that he had been given. He was no longer effective like he should be. Now, this is back when God was picking kings for Israel. It doesn't mean that he picks someone and they're perfect throughout their throughout their reign. They make mistakes. They choose their own way at times, and Saul is one of those men. He's the first king of Israel, and he's also a failing king. To make matters more complicated, David, if you were here during the first week of the series, David was told, anointed, somebody put oil on his head, this ancient symbol of change, that a change is coming, and David was told that he was to be the next king of Israel, that he would be the next ruler of the nation. And Saul... He begins to work for Saul as one of his men. He's a warrior. He's in the military. And so David begins to have these like military victories, and it's making Saul jealous. You may know the story of David killing the giant, saving Israel at the moment from the hands of the Philistines. And so when they returned back to Israel, I think Adam taught on this last week, if you were here, they sang to David. They danced for David. They sang songs about David, and it made Saul completely jealous. Because Saul's a leader, right? He has an ego. Every leader has an ego to contend with. And we find in the story of David's life that Saul will try to kill him six times. Saul will seek out his life six times. And so David is on the run. He's fled for his life. He's living life as a bandit. And the complicated thing for him is that David, he knows that he's the next king of Israel. He knows that. And so it had to be confusing as to why all of this was happening to him. And the question, how long do I have to wait, had to have come up. I mean, we ask that question a lot in our lives, correct? How long do I have to wait for what I know is mine? I know this is going to be mine. How long do I have to wait? How long do I have to sit here and wait on what I know is coming to me? Now that question, how long do I have to wait, can put a lot of pressure on self-control. Does that make sense? If we keep asking that question, that can put a lot of pressure. It can irritate self-control. So this is David's situation. He's on the run. He's in the En Gedi. And Saul took 3,000 men to go look for him, which is not out of the realm of possibility. We do that today. We send thousands and thousands of troops to find one person. And so it's not beyond the realm of possibility. It's reality. And so Saul sends all these men to find David. Look at verse 3. He came to the sheep pens along the way, these little caves, mangers, where David and his men were hiding. A cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, the Hebrew for relieve himself is to relieve himself. Are you with me? <laughs> Do you understand what's happening here? Saul has said, I'm going into the cave to do my thing, to do my business. And he goes in alone. And it says, David and his men were far back in the cave. I, I entitled this section of the story, This Can't Be Happening. All right? There's no way this can be happening. And so we have Saul going in to do his business, 
And David and his men are far back into the darkness, and they watch this whole thing happen. Now, think about the vulnerability of Saul at this point. Are you thinking? Was this not your biggest fear as a freshman in high school? That something would go down while you were in the bathroom? Are you with me? Is it just me? Because all through elementary school, I was the nightmares of like, when you go to high school, they beat you up in the bathroom. This is what you heard. Or they sold you a ticket to swim in the pool on the roof. Those two things were the most feared things for me is that I would get, you know, had on the ticket or get beat up in the bathroom. And so people would go to the bathroom or hold it all day so they didn't have to go in there because it's so vulnerable. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so we have Saul who's gone into the cave to do this thing and he's taken off his robe and everything that he needs to do and he's laid them aside and he's completely exposed. Now, Look at what David's men say in verse 4. Just the first part of verse 4. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of. When he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. So you picture this person crawling up to David and saying, this is the day that God spoke of. I will give your enemy into your hands. So the men read the situation as well, this is a God thing, right? Now, their assumption is natural. It's a natural response. We do this all the time. Uh, all of us sometimes spiritually can connect the dots sooner than we should. We look at a situation and we say, because of A, B, C, and D right here in front of me, this is a divine thing. This is a divine moment. And that's what they've done. Now, if you're new with us, what you don't know is that we don't own this building. We lease it, and one day they'll tear it down and put an empty high-rise here. It's true, they will. Uh, I was telling last service, my wife and I are convinced the sovereign next door to us has 40-something condos in it. We're convinced they're just turning on lights at night, so you think there's people living there. Like, they've bought those iron silhouettes of people that just stand in the windows, and like, they have a martini and a cigarette, you know, and you're driving, and you're like, oh, look, there's people living there. It's great. Um, but they're not. And so we don't own this building, but one day we'll have to leave. And so uh, two and a half years ago when I started working here, uh, part of my job was just to look for venues, to look for spaces to meet in so we could sing and teach and remember uh, Jesus through the Lord's Supper and to encourage one another and all that. So we had to find spaces. And I can't tell you how many, A, places I went in, hundreds of places, B, I can't tell you how many times within those trips to different places that me and some of the team would look at each other and go, this is the building God is going to give us. We did it so many times. I mean, we would be in a place and the realtor would be showing us around and the realtor would be, we would find out that, oh, he's a Christian. Oh, he's heard of us. He wants to help us. This is the perfect size. It has parking. It's not far. This is the day that the Lord spoke of when he said, I'll take care of your needs. We would think that. There was one place down on Bennett Street, which is this cool, hip, shabby sort of art district, and there's an old restaurant that was, uh, had been closed for a while, and it was a cool space, hardwood floors, no ceiling, just sort of like the, you know, the vaulted whatever ceiling, and they still had like the Fellini's uh, lights hanging from the uh, ceiling all throughout the place, and I said, I don't care what we do, but those aren't coming out because those are cool. And so we started to look in the room and walk around, and we visited multiple times. We met with the people who owned it. 
And it got to the point where we were saying, this is where a stage could go, this is where kids could go, we could do this in here, we could have this happening, and oh, this is perfect. And then the owners allowed us to have a leadership meeting in that building at night, turned on the air conditioning for us, we went, we went in there and like rearranged tables, we built a small restaurant, we invited our team back that night, we had food, drinks, and we talked about it, and we would sit around the table, not all of us, but some of us would say, this is the building, this is where we'll be, this is perfect. We're not there. It didn't work out. They sold it to some high-end restaurant, you know? It's the way it works. But there are times when we, and if you're a follower of God, you've been there, where you look at a situation and you say, all the dots connect. You have this moment where you go, there it is. This is a divine thing. And it turns out to not be a divine thing. It turns out to be something that maybe you thought was, but it wasn't. And so the men come up to David and they say, this is the day that the Lord spoke of when he said to you, and they put quotes here, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now here's the problem with this sort of prophecy that they give David. It's a lie. It's not anywhere in the scriptures. You can, you can search every page of the Bible and what they say God said is not in there. They made it up. They assessed the situation and they put words in the mouth of God. It's not found in the texts anywhere. But David believes it, right? Or maybe they had a misunderstanding of David's anointing, like when Samuel came and said, you will be the next king. Maybe they're misinterpreting that. But either way, what they say is not what God has said. And so for, the, for his men and for David as well, he feels like this is a setup. This is a divine setup for success. And so watch what he does next. Just the first part or the second part of verse 4. It says, Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. How does he do that? Well, Saul's robe isn't on him. B, Saul is very occupied at this point. And so David is able to crawl up to Saul and cut a corner of his robe. Now, verse 5 says, Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having done that. We'll talk about that in a moment, but let's first talk about the robe. In the days of David, the robe was a symbol of leadership. Look at this verse on the screen of this passage. This is the story of when Jonathan, Saul's son, hands David his robe and some other things as well. It says, And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David. This is the moment when Johnny Cash gave Bob Dylan his guitar. It's, I'm passing this on to you, right? He gave his robe to David, along with his tunic and his sword, his bow and his belt. If you're reading this in an ancient sense, this is all the stuff that belongs to the heir to the throne. And so Jonathan makes this very physical, symbolic, and actual gesture that says, you are the next king. It's a symbol of leadership. Now, if a robe is torn in those days, it's a symbol of a torn nation. Look at this passage here. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught the hem of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today. So he has this great comeback. But there's these other passages where... Uh, someone would tear the robe into ten different pieces. And he would pass out the pieces of the robe and say, these symbolize the ten different tribes of Israel which are now divided. It's the symbol of a torn nation. Now we don't deal in this sort of 
symbolism in our culture, but in these days and in that culture, it's very, it's very powerful. So it was a symbol, not just of leadership, but if it's torn, it's a symbol of a torn nation. And so for David to cut the edge of the robe off is bigger than just he's vandalizing property. He's making a, he's making a statement. And in the ancient Near East, in the Middle Bronze Age, which is kind of where we are in this story, robes were especially important for kings. They were made in such a way where they separated themselves visually from the rest of the people. So they had these robes they would wear that really uh, set them apart from everyday culture. But also on robes, especially on kings, there were certain things that were attached to the robes that reminded them of the laws of Moses. Look at this next slide. This is, comes from Numbers, where the writer says, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments. This is what David cut off. With a blue cord on each tassel. And you will have these tassels to look at. And so you will remember all the commands of the Lord that you may obey them. So it's this walking, sort of living, breathing reminder of the laws of God. And a king would have all of this on his robe. And it would be beautiful. It would have color. It would be well put together. And so when David cut the robe... He made the robe, and all it stood for, irrelevant. He took the meaning away from the robe. And it became, uh, he, he put it into like the category of non-compliance to the laws of Moses. Making Saul's most obvious symbol of leadership void. Does this make sense? So what appears to be benevolent on David's part, like, well, he didn't kill him but he humiliated him. He humiliated the very thing that is a symbol of the leadership and the influence and the power of the current king. When I was in college, uh, the night before graduation, I wasn't graduating. I had some friends graduating a couple years ahead of me, and we were all in the dorm room, maybe six or eight of us, and they were all complaining and making fun of the guys who had, like, the honor cords. Anybody an honor grad? Yeah, they were making fun of you. No one. Okay, good. Second service people, that's good. All the first service people, honor grads. I'm just trying to make a point here. But uh, <laughs> on time and honor grads. But uh, so we were making, I wasn't making fun of those people because I don't make fun of people. Uh, <laughs> so they're kind of complaining and they're like, man, I wish we'd have tried harder and whatever. And it just became this moment of like, you know, wish we could have done a better job. And I said, you know what you should do? You should go down to the fabric store and you should buy you some curtain rod or curtain rope and like make your own tassel. Just wear your own tassel. And they all looked at each other and they were like, it's brilliant. So they got their keys and they went down to like Michael's whatever and they bought this real thick silver rope curtain cord and they came back to the dorm and they're making their own honor. <laughs> this is brilliant. They tied the knot on the ends, and it was frayed. It was beautiful. It was just beautiful. I mean, it, was just like, it looked just like it. So the next day at graduation, I'm up in the balcony, and I'm watching the graduates come out. And as they came out, you would see every so often, there were about six or eight of them, they would reach into their sleeve as they came out from the back door, and they would grab this cord, and they would put it on their neck, and they would just walk up on stage. I mean, is this brilliant or what? So the people in the audience are, like, looking through their bulletin, what's the silver big cord like, you know? And so they would come across the stage and shake the president's hand, and the president would sort of look at them and just, you know, okay, get them off. And, uh, but I'm up there cracking up because, A, it was my idea. Thank you very much. 
Uh, I can't believe they did that. But uh, it was beautiful. It was brilliant. It was ingenious. But on the flip side, it was a mockery of those who actually earned them. Correct? People who got up early, went to class, didn't get dropped from class, and had to retake the class ten times. It was a mockery of their effort. And that's a much lesser example, but what David did in the cave that day was simply in his day an act of rebellion. He humiliated the current leader of Israel. Whether it was right or wrong, whether he was right about Saul or not, he dethroned him, he humiliated him, he embarrassed him in front of his own men and in front of his own nation. He essentially stood up in the congressional meeting and said, you lied. That's what he did. It's a powerful thing. And what appears merciful on David's part, again, well, he didn't kill him. What appears merciful was actually very mercenary. And to cut the corner of a king's robe was to make a statement that your leadership and your kingdom and your reign has now ended. And it was to say without saying that mine has now begun. And so David, this is what David did. And you can't blame him. He knows he's the next king. Saul is failing miserably as a leader. He was also vulnerable. It appears that God has put this whole situation in his path. And so he took advantage of it. Look at verses 5 through 7. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken. The word there is the word nakah. It means to be hit. Do we have that on the slide? Yes, to feel a deep conviction. It's a powerful feeling of something isn't right. It's a moment of clarity, really, for David. Like, he's running ahead of God, so to speak. He realizes this, that, okay, this is not the way it was supposed to be. What I have done is very humiliating, not just to Saul, but to what God's plan and promise was for my life. And so David feels very, very conscience-stricken about this. It says, for having cut, having cut off the corner of the robe, verse 6, he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. So David again has this moment of clarity where he remembers that God is the one who picks the kings. And if I'm going to circumvent God, that's wrong. Whether he's a good king or a bad king makes no difference at this point. I have gone around God to get, even what, to get what I know is mine in the future. I'm trying to push the hand of God, speed up the process. So he says, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. So you have this scene where like, they're ready, like, cool, you got his robe, let's do the rest. And Saul left the cave and went his way. And so David has a moment of clarity that perhaps he's pushing God. And also in that moment of clarity, he realizes that, okay, I know God has set me apart to be the next king, but that will be a gift from him and not a trophy of my own skill, which is the struggle of every leader, right? If you're a leader, you know what I'm talking about. You just have this feeling that I know what needs to happen, I know what I need to do, and I'll do it. I'll push it and push it and push it until it happens. And David has this moment where he realizes that I should not have done that. Because that's God's to give and not mine to take. So this question that David probably asked for many years, how long do I have to wait 
for what God has promised me? How long do I have to wait for, I, for what I know is actually mine has gotten the best of his self-control? Look at this passage on the screen from Isaiah. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope, let me hear you say the word hope. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Have you heard this before? It's a poem in the book of Isaiah. He writes these words, and it's about waiting on the Lord. The word for hope is the word kovah, and it means to wait, to sit, to not do anything, to just be still and wait on the Lord. Because we're not waiting on the Lord when we're pushing the hand of God, when we're going around God, when we think we're just doing everything on our own, then we do become weary of our own strength. And so the writer says, hope in the Lord, wait for God to do what he's promised to do, and that will renew your strength. And so we have this concept of waiting on God, and the truth is waiting in general is not easy for us. We don't like to wait on stuff, right? Waiting causes impatience. And impatience can put real pressure on self-control. Agreed? The more and more impatient I get, the less and less in control, there's the potential for me to be less in less control of my temperament, of my behavior, and the things I say. I mean, as a husband, my impatience can get the best of me, and that can put tension between me and my wife. As the father of a seven-year-old, my impatience with him uh, can cause me to say things that will hurt him just because I'm impatient. Just because I want to watch TV and he's got to get in the tub, right? I can hurt him in my impatience. As a friend, my impatience with you can cause me to blow you off. You do it too. I don't have time for that. As a leader, my impatience can cause me to go around the systems to get done what I know needs to be done. And there can be a lot of bloodshed in the background it can cause me to go around you. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, my impatience can cause me to push what I think God is doing prematurely. I can look at the situation and say A, B, C, and D and make this sort of Twitter decision about what God might be doing and then I run ahead of him and he's back here going, where are you going? It's this way. You're not going to meet in that old restaurant. It's over here. I do that all the time. All the time. And Isaiah challenges us to wait on the Lord. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. And we'll end here. This is the front end of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' declaration of what God is up to in the world and it's some of the first things he says publicly, and uh, these are very famous. We're going to look at a piece of the Beatitudes, some of the more famous things that you may have heard of, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, and so on. And in verse 5, Jesus says these words, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And all the Beatitudes have this counterintuitive result, like blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor don't get anything. So all the ears in the audience sort of turn, they're confused. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Again, it's counterintuitive. And then Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
The meek don't get the earth. In the days of Jesus, the Romans get the earth. The people with the tanks and the guns and the authority and the power, they get the earth. But the meek, they don't get the earth. They get run over. They have to say Caesar is Lord or give up their rights to life. And so for Jesus to stand on a hill and say, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who don't overreact, blessed are those who live between the extremes, blessed are those who uh, have power under control, you will inherit the earth. It's counterintuitive. Now, for the Jewish listener in the days of Jesus, they understand this, at least most of them, they understand this to be about a world to come and not the world as it is. So there is a sense in which what Jesus is talking about here is something that is coming but not yet. So when we hear Jesus talk about the kingdom of God, it's sort of a both now and later situation. The kingdom of God is at hand, but it will be perfected in the future. So there's this sense of a world to come. And many of his Jewish listeners would have understood that when he says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. A, they think about a passage in Isaiah that says the same thing, as well as a passage in the book of Psalms that says the same thing. So they remember that this is not about now, but this is about something to come. But in the now, I'm supposed to live this meek life. So it's this sense in which you are waiting in the now for what God has promised in the future. And to be meek, and there's all sorts of explanations for this, but to be meek is essentially to live between the extremes. It's not to be materialistic, but it's not to be closed-fisted either, right? It's not to be, it's not to never be angry and it's not to live a life of rage either. So there's something in the middle that God is interested in. Something that is slow. Something that we might call patience. And so this is about learning to wait. Because the truth is, again, if you're a follower of Christ, you understand this uh, more than most people. But that sin and destructive decisions, they happen most when we're tired of waiting that's when we get antsy and that's when we do things that we shouldn't do or say things that we shouldn't say. That's when we hurt people we should never hurt. When we're tired of waiting. When we're tired of just sitting around. We can sometimes become destructive. And waiting, as I said earlier, can be the enemy of self-control. Look at this last passage on the screen from Galatians. Maybe you know this. If you grew up in church, I think there's a song for this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is this amazing phrase about what God is up to in the world. It's also a phrase about, a phrase that describes who God is. You can find passage after passage on each one of those words describing God in those ways, right? But it's also this if the Spirit of God is moving and living in you, then this is what that hopefully looks like. And it begins with love. Love of God and love of neighbor. These are the two greatest commands. We know this in the Scriptures. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus would say that those two commands uh, trump all the, all the commands. He says, hang on those two commands. Love God and love people. So the fruit of the Spirit Life with God begins with love of Him and of the world. And it's anchored in self-control. The kind of, God the kind of love that God is looking for in us is not this love of sort of reckless abandon, but under control, 
in control of our passions, in control of what our heart is telling us, in control of love, that we're within the parameters of what God wants us to do. It's anchored in self-control. And everything in between is what that looks like. A self-controlled person is joyful. They are peaceful. They are patient with people. They're kind. There's a goodness about them. There's a faithfulness about them. And obviously there's a gentleness about them. And so self-control becomes the carpet on which all of that sits. And if I lose that, everything begins to unravel. I'm not as gentle. I'm not as faithful. I'm not as good. So on and so on. So this is about waiting and sitting and hoping and letting God deliver what God has promised to deliver while we sit and trust. Now this is not to be mistaken as, well, I'm still praying about that. Really, it's been like six years. You're going to work in the nursery or not, right? That's not what we're talking about. Well, I'm waiting on the Lord to give me an answer whether I should volunteer in the nursery. That's not what we're talking about. You're just being a wimp at that point. But, uh, and those who work in the nursery go, amen, because it's messy in there. That's not the kind of waiting, but this is about when we feel the urge to go around what God is doing to get what we want and what we think is rightfully ours. That's exactly what David did. His men convinced him with some false prophecy. This is what God was talking about. We got our swords drawn. Go get him. And it wasn't true. And David realized that when he cut the corner of Saul's robe. Does this make sense? We should be patient. Is what I gather from this story. And this is kind of the beginning in our series of when David begins to make all sorts of mistakes based on his passions. And these will keep happening over and over and over again. And the encouragement for us from the scriptures is that we are to be meek and patient, self-controlled, and all of that. Because God will do what he has promised to do, but we have to let him do that. And we don't need to do that for him. He doesn't need us to do that for him. So uh, I'm going to pray in a moment, and then we're going to move into our time of communion. If you're new, uh, we have four tables, two in the front, two in the back, and the bread and the juice represent, uh, from the very moments of the Last Supper, Jesus instituted this to say, look, when you gather together, eat this bread and drink this juice in remembrance of me. That's all it is. It's a, re it's a reminder of what God has done through Jesus, and, uh, and so we do that each and every week, and so after I pray, the, the, there'll be some music, and you can, at your own pace, move to one of the tables uh, and do that. There's baskets on every table as well. You can put your prayer cards in there, things we can pray about for you. You can drop those in there. They're also for offering. And so uh, if you've come to give, which is a part of worship as well, uh, you can do that at that time. Let me pray, and then we'll move right into this. Father, thank you for this story. Um, just a real life. This is what happened. This is how people reacted. This is what David did. And then we see that uh, he's stricken with just like this guilt of, okay, that wasn't the right thing. And I think that, you know, that line in the story is something that we've all experienced, where uh, we've said something, done something, been in a certain place, and we realize very quickly that this is not right. 
that either we are running ahead of you or away from you or something, but we, we, come, we come clear in our minds that we've made some sort of mistake. And so I just pray for all of us in the room that, uh, there's, that there's peace in knowing that you continue to love us and shower us with grace and mercy uh, over our decisions that might be rash or that might come from impatience on waiting for you. And let that be, Father, in us what moves us to these tables today. A reminder that you uh, are long-suffering and long-suffering uh, and patient with us that you sent your Son, this Jesus, to come and to live and to explain what it means to follow you and to love you, and he died and rose again. And so as we move to the tables, just bless this time. Uh, make it a sweet time of encouragement and remembrance and, and fellowship as the church moves together to these places. We love you and we pray this in your son's name. Amen.